0: Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Happy New Year. So as I turn here to Jeremiah 45, that's where we'll be, Um, just a word of encouragement. You are here this morning because God ordained that it would be so. I'm not rolling up my sleeves to look tough. It annoys me when my sleeves are down here and I didn't notice it because I was holding my baby a minute ago. So, thank you, appreciate that. I have been working out. Um, (laughs) All right, so you are here this morning because God ordained that it would be so. Uh, Just a few things that God says happen because he ordains that they would be so. The roll of dice, that's from Ecclesiastes, if I remember right, the plans of kings, Uh, The worst sin that has ever occurred, which is the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to the book of Acts, everything that happens under the sun happens because God ordained that it would be so. So you are not here by accident. You are here because God wanted you here, which is a very encouraging thing if you think about it. We're going to read Jeremiah 45, 1 through 5. This is a little bit of a pause in our series on Luke. Uh, Pastor Michael will lead us in a short intermission series beginning next week. I think I have that right. Michael, I can't see. Yes, it's very bright with these. So, But I believe that was a head nod. So this is just a short pause. The reason why we're gonna uh, be in Jeremiah 45 is because we read this in family worship in my house a few weeks ago, and it convicted me. And I had a feeling it would convict you and encourage you and sharpen you. So we'll see. I prayed that it would be so, and I believe it will be so. Jeremiah 45, verses one through five. The word that Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, woe is me for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down and what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. So let me give you a little bit of context here. I am sure most of us are not super familiar with Baruch. I told my wife people would think of two things based on how old they, well, I didn't, I'm thinking primarily of millennials, which is what I am, and Gen Z, which comes after me. If you're a millennial, you hear Baruch and you probably think like Baruch, Baruch, Baruch is on fire. That's what I thought of when I first heard this name. Nobody else, okay. And if you're Gen Z, you're probably thinking like Baruch, like Baruch Obama, no, it's a different, yeah. Yep, so uh, I have, Eric and I both have ADD, so that's where my mind goes when I first hear this name. But what's going on here is you have a scribe named Baruch who recorded all of Jeremiah's prophecies for the people of Israel. So everything you read in this book was transcribed by this man, Baruch. He was a secretary, he was a trusted scribe. He wrote down the words of Jeremiah. And the words of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Jeremiah, this whole book is happening at the tail end of the kingdom of Judah. So just very briefly, God's people had a kingdom, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their descendants had a kingdom called Israel. And they had three kings in the time in which that whole group of people was together and unified. Saul, then David, then Solomon. And after Solomon, it broke apart. And in the southern portion of the territory, you had Judah, and then in the northern portion, you had Israel. And after they broke apart, the northern kingdom of Israel had no good kings, no faithful kings. There was one king named Jehu who was like half good, but even he ended up being idolatrous. And so the kingdom of Israel, the northern half, got taken away in exile by Assyria. God punished them. The end. Their story's over. But the kingdom of Judah had several good kings and had several periods of faithfulness under Josiah, under Hezekiah, under some kings who worshiped the Lord. And so lasting longer, they had a little bit of a sense of pride about their worship and they had a sense of pride because the temple was in their part of the territory and jeremiah speaks to that pride and speaks to that idolatry and says listen israel was taken away by assyria you all are now going to be taken away god is going to spank punish discipline you so let me show you in jeremiah 5 where this first is spoken so this is the weeping prophet jeremiah the one who has the bad news to deliver by god's providence In Jeremiah 5, verses 12 through 19, you start to see some of the discipline that's going to come from Babylon, the king Nebuchadnezzar. They, this is God's people, he's talking about his own people, they have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing, no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind, the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. We don't trust the word of the prophets we're fine things have been going on like they have always been going on forever Israel got taken away but things are doing. we have gas is like a dollar a gallon here in Judah we're fine 401ks are going up inflation is low it's great verse 14 therefore thus says the Lord the God of hosts because you have spoken this word Behold, I am making my words in your mouth, and here he means Jeremiah's mouth, or scripture, the prophet's mouth. I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people, God's people, would, and the fire shall consume them. God's word will overtake them. The prophecies of Jeremiah will consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. He's talking about Babylon. It is an enduring nation, it is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are almighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Everything you love, everything you're trusting in, everything you're hoping in is gonna be destroyed by a pagan nation that doesn't worship me because I am in charge of pagan kings. And I'm gonna discipline you through one. Your fortified cities, verse 17, don't miss this. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword but even in those days declares the Lord I will not make a full end of you hallelujah for God's long suffering and patience and when your people say why has the Lord God done all these things to us you Jeremiah the prophet the scripture the word of God the Bible you shall say to them as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours this is the message jeremiah has to deliver baruch and jeremiah are a part of a society god is about to judge god is sending babylon as discipline for his people just a little bit more of context here hang with me jeremiah 21 now this is where god says something that my kids at least when we read through jeremiah had a little bit of trouble with Um, god commands his people to submit to nebuchadnezzar now, Nebuchadnezzar might be in heaven, if you read Daniel, but he ain't a believer at this point when he's coming to take over Jerusalem and Judah. So God is commanding his people to submit to an unbeliever, a sinner, a pagan. I mean, we, they would view this guy the way I used to view Saddam Hussein when I was growing up. Like, he's the bad guy. Nebuchadnezzar's the bad guy. And God commands his people to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's where that happens in verses 1 through 10, or one of several places where it happens. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah, so this is later, Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. When King Zedekiah sent to him, Pashur the son of Malchiah and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, here's what the king says to the word of God, to the prophet, to the man who can speak inherently the words of the Holy Spirit. Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us perhaps the lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us which is not a ridiculous question ask god maybe he'll have mercy and jeremiah said to them thus you shall say to zedekiah my king the one who can have my head cut off go back and deliver this news wouldn't you be tempted to be like sure i asked and god said yes thus says the lord the god of israel Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, not Nebuchadnezzar's weapons of war, your own, and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They will die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, you guys, the one I'm delivering the message to, and the people in this city who survived the pestilence sword and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, God's word to his people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city, he who refuses to submit to my discipline, he who thinks that he can trust in his fortified cities and in his swords and in the Judean economy and that things will just continue going on like they've always gone on, he who thinks that way and lives that way will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans, it's the Babylonians, who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against the city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. Just one more verse to give you a little bit of a taste of what Baruch is going through before we learn from his mistake. Because if I preached this in such a way that you just thought Baruch was a bad guy and I'd never be like Baruch, because who could be that stupid, then I preached it wrong. You have to understand what Baruch's going through, because the reality is you and I have both been Baruch. Verse 26 of chapter 36. The king Jehoiakim of Judah does this. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah the son of Asriel, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary. He wrote this. He, he wrote about his, his own attempted execution. To seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. So... We are with a man who is about to see his whole society collapse. Like imagine the school where you went to middle school or high school, the street you grew up on, all your neighbors, great American ballpark, your favorite ice cream shop, the place where you spent 20 years working, your grandma's house. All of it burned, gone. God's telling you in in a few years it's all going to be gone. And you thought you were gonna buy a house in that subdivision in Westchester, Westchester is gonna be leveled flat. And there will be pagans who come in your place, people who don't worship God. There'll be false temples worshiping idols throughout this place. This is where Baruch is. He he is about to see everything that he dreamt of and that he loved destroyed because God said so, because of God's discipline on his people. So that's where Baruch is and imagine imagine now knowing that wrestling with that jeremiah is called the weeping prophet i think baruch could justly be called the weeping scribe imagine living with that knowledge for years and then after having delivered messages to the kings of egypt and moab and philistia and judah you, you have been delivering messages to the world's one percenters and god says i have a message for you baruch a secretary Our God cares about the little people. I'm never getting a phone call from the White House, right? Joe Biden's never calling my house, asking for Wade. How you doing, just wanna check in. Things going okay? It's never happening. But the God of the universe cares about what I think and what I feel and my sins and my doubts and my disbeliefs. I know it because he cared about Baruch's. I know it because he sent an Army of angels to communicate to a bunch of blue-collar shepherds about the Savior being born they didn't go to Herod's palace they went to shepherds I know it because there's a pagan Moabite named Ruth in our Lord's family tree and a prostitute named Rahab a pagan prostitute our God loves the little people and he cares about them first Samuel 16 I think says the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart And that's not saying that God, like, looks inside my heart and sees something precious and just has to have me on his team. But it is saying that when the world looks at me or you and sees somebody insignificant, when the world looks at Baruch and sees somebody annoying or insignificant, God sees somebody worth communicating to. That's in verses 1 through 2 when God has a word for Baruch. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. You said... So this is god talking to baruch through the prophet through the bible through jeremiah you said woe is me for the lord has added sorrow to my pain i am weary with my groaning and i find no rest there are some of us in this room i am one of you who for whom being known like intimately known your your deepest fears and sins and desires is absolutely terrifying. Some of us, like Alex, are just born with confidence. That's great, I'm just, I admire it in you. I say it sarcastically because I'm envious, which is a sin. I just violated the 10th commandment right there in real time. But there are many of us for whom, whatever, some some wire is crossed in there, and instead we we view ourselves as something mutated, mistaken, and if people really knew the real us, there would be nothing there worth loving or having. Baruch is known intimately by God, and that is a good thing. Do you remember in John 1 where Philip brings Nathanael? Um, does anybody remember this? It's okay if not. But So Philip brings this man, Nathaniel, who ends up becoming a disciple, but isn't at this point, to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus says something like, well, here's a true son of Israel. And Nathanael doesn't really buy it, doesn't buy that Jesus is who Philip said he was, doesn't buy that he's the Messiah. And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I love that that's like a little inside thing between Jesus and Nathanael that we don't know. I don't know what he was doing under that fig tree. I don't know if he was praying or eating his lunch or weeping about, I have no idea. But Jesus knows and he knew it about Nathanael. It's one of the many times in scripture where God reinforces this truth that I know every little crevice inside of you. I know things about you you don't know. And there's no good running from it or hiding it, cloaking it, which is what unbelievers always do. It's what I did before God caused me to be born again and repent and believe in the gospel. We hide, every, we hide our sins, we cloak them with good works or with justifications. I did this because of this reason. There's no use hiding from the fact that God intimately knows us. You have never had a secret thought, ever. You've never committed a secret sin. And that's good. It is good that God knows us because like Baruch, we nurse sicknesses, sinful diseases, without even knowing that we're doing it. Baruch had nursed this sense of grievance, this sense that God had not held up his end of the bargain. Baruch had had fed that little diseased belief for a long time. And God exposed it lovingly. Uh, Let me show you something in Hebrews 4.12 that is scary and true. Because we're sinful people, most true things are scary, at least true things about God. But with the right heart and the right posture, it's actually very freeing. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God, the thing I'm reading from right now, the thing you're reading from right now, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When I was a kid and we did that armor of God exercise, if anybody grew up in the church, and it's like you've either got like the flannel guy with all the sword of the spirit and the boots of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation, or like you had like real armor you would put on in the Sunday school room. That's cool, and it's true that the sword is in my hands at times, but here is one place where we see it's not just a sword I use against the world or against the demonic powers of evil. It's also a sword God uses to cut me open and to expose the intentions of my heart or Baruch's heart. And it's a good thing. I tell my kids a lot, we have a list of Thomas' family proverbs, and one of the ones in my house is, your feelings will lie to you a lot. God's word never will. My feelings lie to me all the time. And the sword of the Spirit discerns it and exposes it. Uh, let me read to you this, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. This is about Jeremiah's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecies and Ezekiel's prophecies and the book of Matthew and the book of Proverbs and every bit of scripture you'll ever read right here. And we have, Peter tells us, you and me, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Hey, it's January 1st. You got a Bible reading plan? Do well to pay attention. Michael posted one on Facebook last night, right? Use a Bible reading plan, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no verse in the Psalms, no verse in the the Gospel of John, no verse in Revelation, no verse in Jeremiah comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here was Baruch believing this this lie that he had not been given something by God that he was owed and in one second with one word from one prophet, God was able to expose the whole thing to make that house of cards collapse. You and I both need that. Our feelings, our thoughts, our beliefs are not inerrant. Be skeptical of them. Be a feelings skeptic, right? You skeptic of like the mainstream media or? your conspiracy theory uncle, or you got things you're skeptical of, right? Be skeptical of your feelings and your own thoughts. I've heard another pastor who I trust say, doubt your doubts, it's a good word. All right, so Baruch has said this thing, and God knows it, and God exposes it through the word of the prophet, and it's good for Baruch. He's believed this falsehood, that he was not given something he was owed. Let me show you, Baruch has wrongly defined the environment of his pain. So read again Baruch's words. God says, you said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Then in verse four, God says, he's breaking down what he's built. And then in verse five, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. That's a rhetorical question. God knows the answer. Yes, you have sought great things for yourself. And that is the environment in which you view your pain. You think you are Your pain, your sorrow, your grief, your lack of sleep is because or is a character in a story about you not getting what you were owed. I am not the only person who has this in common with Baruch, right? You don't have to nod or raise your hand. You can if you want to. But I am not the only one who has this in common with Baruch. God, I'll tell you why I'm depressed, I say in my heart. Not out loud and not in actual prayer because I fear God, but somewhere down in there, God, I should have gotten X or life should not be like X or this shouldn't have gone like X and that is why I'm depressed, why I'm frustrated, why I'm irritable, why I'm despairing. Human beings are terrible at identifying the meaning of their pain. We are awful at it we always think that in and of our own selves we can discern what our pain what our sorrow what our depression what our fear what our anxiety means and we're almost always wrong we have a terrible batting average at it baruch did himself and it's in the bible to show us that baruch believed that god was going to judge judah But what he doubted was that God would be good to him, good to Baruch, in writing Baruch's part in that story. He assumed his pain was a legitimate grievance, and he was wrong. It wasn't. It was real pain, and Jeremiah had it too. Jeremiah had pain. Jeremiah's sorrow is all over this book, but not once does God say the sort of thing to Jeremiah that he says to Baruch. The pain was not sinful. The sorrow was not sinful. The sleepless nights were not sinful. His belief about what the pain meant was sinful. And God tenderly tells him what kind of story the pain is really in in verse 4. So yes, Baruch, you have sorrow. And yes, Judah being destroyed, your hometown being destroyed, your people being destroyed and sent into exile is sad. But here is the story your sadness and your pain are actually in. They're not a Baruch-centered story. You're not the hero. You're not the protagonist. Verse 4, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down, and what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. Baruch is the subject in his sentence. I am weary with my groaning. My sorrow, my pain. But God is the subject in the story that's actually happening. This is kind of like with Jonah. Do you guys remember the end of the Jonah story, right, where he's sitting outside Nineveh? And what happens? God causes a plant to grow up, and Jonah just sits there stewing in his hatred of the Ninevites. This is going to be great when God wipes this town out, just nukes it. And I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to laugh because these pagans are going to get what's coming to them, And God doesn't do it. And Jonah gets mad. I knew you were a God, merciful and slow to anger. I knew this was what you would do. This is the kind of thing you always do. So just kill me. After God causes the plant that was giving him shade to die. And God says, I caused this plant to come up. And I have something I'm doing in Nineveh. This is my story. You, Jonah, are a character in my story. You, Baruch, are a character in my story. You, wait, are a character in my story. This is not about you. That's why self-pity is always sinful because self-pity always assumes, somehow, I am the one who the world should revolve around. It's always sinful. And we know that, by the way, when we see self-pity in someone else. Have you noticed that? Like, you can always spot it in your aunt, your cousin, your neighbor it's annoying and we never see it in ourselves we're so blind which is why we need the word of god Uh, by the way this has always been the story god's not springing something new on baruch Um, in jeremiah 1 verses 4 through 10 right at the beginning when he calls jeremiah The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then Jeremiah says, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. But the Lord God said to me, don't say I'm only a youth for to all whom I send you, you'll go. And whatever I command you, you'll speak. Don't be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. God touches Jeremiah's mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. The Bible, God's word, is over nations and kingdoms. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Do you recognize those words, those verbs? The same verbs. God's saying, I told you this at the beginning, Jeremiah and Baruch. The story has never changed. The story is good, and you are a character in it. I need this, you need this. Baruch thinks in light of his pain. He views the world through the lens of his anguish, and God gives him a gift of the truth. He brings him up and shows him the story he's actually in. All right, verse five, and then I've just got two application points. Verse five. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Baruch, do you seek great things for yourself in this Judah I am about to destroy through Nebuchadnezzar? Are you looking for meaning and prizes and purpose in this place I am about to judge? Are you running in this race? If so, you're grasping after smoke. You are saddened because the world in which you sought to be great is about to be brushed aside, and I, Yahweh, the Lord, am giving you the gift of seeing it was always a mirage. James 1.11 says that the rich will be gone. Ecclesiastes tells us all the world when we seek after it to be our God is like vanity and smoke. God's giving Baruch a gift. I'm not talking to unbelievers, men and women. I'm talking to us. I'm talking to me. you have any idea how much smoke I've chased in my life? I was bummed out a week ago because our pastor beat me in fantasy football for like... Six hours, I sat out on the front porch, smoked my pipe, had my son sitting out there with me. (laughs) And I mean, it's okay to be bummed out for a few minutes, but it was hours. I'm glad we can all laugh at my expense. We should, you're supposed to. It's childish and you should laugh at it. But that is smoke. You chased after anything like that recently? I already know the answer, so don't lie first application first application do not seek great things for yourself so a qualifier it is not that you are not supposed to seek after great things do not seek after great things for yourself all right i'm going to read something this is what you get when you have me preach i'm a writer i like writing things down so i wrote down some thoughts in the glenway starbucks the other day all right men kill fleshly ambition and feed your sanctified ambition this temptation that baruch has this temptation is a particularly male temptation. that does, temptation that does not mean that no woman in this room has it but it means that men and women are eternally gendered beings and there are particular temptations that will be more resonant with males with men There are plenty of warnings in scripture about women and their sins, feminine nourishing and motherliness, and a desire to be relationally present. Those can go bad. See Rachel and Leah. See Paul's warning about women being gossips and busybodies in 1 Timothy 5.13. But this is a particularly male temptation. Here in Baruch was the desire to be great in oneself. I have desired to be great in myself. For as long as i can remember and it's wicked adam was crafted by god to tend and to name and to subcreate and to make and to categorize and to build gardens and households within god's beautiful world the desire to make and overcome and be challenged is good amen amen men are we called to be to, to overcome challenges and build and achieve yes we are absolutely but just like with women where the temptation to to be overbearing, to overly nourish, to overprotect, their children can go sideways, can take a good thing and turn it bad, turn it on its side. Our ambition can go bad. This God-authored fire in our chests to build and subdue is one that we can sinfully burn in a war of our own fame, a war for our own fame. In my life, I have, in order, desired to be, let me see if I can remember, Ken Griffey Jr., then Stephen King, then uh, Jack Bauer (laughs) and then President Bartlett on the West Wing and then Stephen King again for a little bit. And in all of those desires, in all of them, was a narcissistic desire to be admired, fawned over, looked up to. Is the desire to be respected inherently sinful? It's not, otherwise God wouldn't command wives to do it to their husbands. But is it always gonna be a temptation for almost every man in this room to pursue it as the greatest end of his life? I think so. I think it was in Baruch and I think it is in us. Let me read to you where it was for our disciples, the ones who wrote a good portion of our New Testament. Matthew 20, verses 22 through 28. Jesus answered to the two disciples whose mom had asked if they could be on his right and his left, have like the, the top, you know, spots there. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, the two disciples who wanted those spots, said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, of whom Matthew was one, he records this honestly. When the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. This is like arguing over the college football playoff. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not a call for men to be doormats. This is a call for men to have the right ambitions. Jesus is a king, but he has godly ambitions. A good picture of this is David and Solomon. David thought he was gonna to get to build the temple. He desires to build the temple. He sends Nathan out and Nathan says, that's great. The prophet Nathan says, that's great, you're gonna do it. Then Nathan comes back and says, sorry, I heard from God. Turns out your son's gonna do it. The thing David desired was great, to build the temple, to make Yahweh known throughout Judah and throughout Israel and throughout the world. That was a good desire and God said, yeah, you're right, good desire, it's gonna happen. You're not gonna be the hero of that story, your son is. It is good to desire great things, but we need to desire them in the right way. Men, seek great things, but not for yourselves. Cincinnati needs men who are jealous for their neighbor kids to come be saved by King Jesus. There's one who lives not, down, not far from me that my kids have played with before. Super short hair. Um, I think flirting with some sexual sin. I want to see that kid come to Jesus. Cincinnati needs men who, like Daniel, pray to Yahweh three times a day with the window open right there on Babylon's main street so that all the bad guys can snap pictures of him and send it to King Darius. Did you see what Daniel did? Daniel doesn't hide. He's got godly courage underneath godly ambition. They need men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who would rather burn alive than bend their knees to the nation's current God of the day, even if it makes them seem intolerant or extremist. Cincinnati needs 100,000 men with sanctified ambitions, with testosterone and muscle and prayers and households that all point towards the king of kings and that all march to his orders and take every thought captive and tear down strongholds and leave the world more Christian than they found it. You believe the city needs men like that? I'm trying to raise up three. You wanna be one? You want your boys to be one? My green township, your Hartwell, your Fort Thomas, your Fort Wright, your Clifton, your Norwood, your Reading, your Coleraine Township, needs men whose funerals have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren packed into a service where hymns are sung and the gospel is proclaimed and the eulogy drips with goodness and the worth of Jesus Christ and where everyone leaves the place saying, I hope I can be that sort of a man with that sort of a faith someday. That's the kind of ambitions the world needs. The world's got enough Donald Trumps. The world's got enough men who seek to self-aggrandize and make themselves look big and powerful and tough. The world's got enough men who have the wrong kinds of ambition. It needs men who have good ambitions. So that's for men, for everyone, men, women, children who know Jesus, seek his kingdom first, not your own. You have to love the practicality of God's word here. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. That's his word to you. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Have you considered concealing your faith to win momentum for your career? Seek it not. Does the esteem of men drive you more than pleasing God? Seek it not. Are you fretful that you may never get that house or the career or the place or the position or the dream picture in that special lock box in the back of your mind? Seek it not. Seek his kingdom first. All right, application point number two. Do not assume you understand the meaning of your own pain. I'm smiling because I do this all the time. And I'm almost always wrong. I have one of my children. I won't say which, but I think she's back there. She and I talk about how we have this in common, that our feelings and our thoughts lie to us all the time. Baruch slotted his sorrows into a story that he'd written for himself, and it was the wrong story. So my word to you is this. Examine your pain in light of the word of God. Never examine the world in light of your pain. Pain will always assert itself to be the lens through which you view the problem, or the crisis, or the relationship, but never give it that place. Never give it the place of the Word of God. I have seen this with real people in our church, and I have seen it in my own household where our pain asserts itself. This thing must be wrong or sinful because I hurt. This thing someone did or this thing that happened in the world must be sinful, must be wicked, must be inappropriate because I hurt. But our pain is not the arbiter of reality, it ain't. You can hurt, blow your mind here a little bit. You can hurt and your feeling of being hurt, be wrong. Your feelings can be wrong. Everybody has a Bible, it's another little Thomas proverb. Everybody has a Bible. And for most of America, their Bible is their feelings. That's how they interpret everything. The grid through which they view reality and every relationship is their feelings. And I am suckered into this all the time. I'm not immune to it. I watch the same movies you do. Same TV shows, some of them. Some of them are too much. I watched the first season of Stranger Things. I know the song that we're all singing in the West, in the United States, and it's this one, that our feelings are the arbiter, the grid for which we view reality. It's false, it's false. Baruch's feelings were wrong. His pain and the way he interpreted it was going against the grain of the story God was telling. Don't let your feelings be your Bible. Don't let your feelings be your Pope. All right, let me give you a closing word here. If you're looking for what this all means in one sentence, it's this Plant godly ambitions in a Godward heart. You want your kids to be saved? It's a godly ambition. You want to get married? Have a beautiful wife, faithful husband? household that just has the aroma of the gospel that's a godly ambition you want to advance at work and get more influence so that you can earn a good living and be a light for the gospel be a good manager a better manager than the other ones you've seen at your office that's a godly ambition you want to be a great mother see your sons and your daughters love you when they're old bring their kids home you see your grandkids Thanksgiving Christmas and everybody's happy and everybody loves you and everybody loves the Lord and everybody's singing Christmas songs it's a godly ambition you want to read your Bible this year it's a godly ambition but take those godly ambitions and plant them in a heart that is oriented towards the glory of God I have wanted good things for the wrong reason I have wanted to be a good father and a good husband so that all of you would look at me and say, man, he is a good father and a good husband. It's wicked, it's self-serving, it's vain, it's proud. And it will kill me unless I kill it. Orient your heart towards the glory of God and seek godly things as you orient your heart towards the glory of God and as you do, as you do you will be very satisfied at your role in the story he's telling please pray with me abba father we are overjoyed at the prospect in front of us and it's a new year we've got a brand new year filled with brand new possibilities we're still the same men and women and in a lot of cases we still have the same problems but this is a whole new slate of time in which we can obey and trust and worship and delight at your feet you are good and you want to use us for good things and some of them will hurt but they are all They are all notes in a song about your glory and your goodness and your wisdom. And you will satisfy us with yourself eternally. So tomorrow, when we go back to work, when we go back to getting the kids out of bed, when we go back to class, tomorrow when we wake up, Lord, Help us to frame all of reality, all of our experiences, all of our thoughts and feelings within the truth of your word. It's your story. We're going to be tempted 24 hours from now to think that it's about us and to nurse grievances and bitternesses. Stop us from doing that, Lord pulverize us in a good way with your word. You are unimaginably kind to us in speaking to us. And we thank you for it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church please visit us at ctksnc.com